Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice. Do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slunder. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rock. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lonely and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. 
for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much sure gold. Amen. When was the last time you experienced revival? Not a revival. Depending on your background, you may have been to a few of those or at least seen the signs on the side of the road. Much of what goes by the name revival, I wouldn't endorse. But true revival is something we all need. Chapter 56 begins the last of Isaiah's three major sections. In the first, he called out against the wickedness and idolatry among God's own people. In the second, he presented the servant and the invitation to hope in God's promises. And in these last 10 chapters, he offers instructions and exhortations for people who have that hope and are now waiting, waiting for the fullness of those promises to come. These last 10 chapters are for the people who ask, in this time of waiting, how do we walk with God? How do we remain faithful in a fallen world? We still have indwelling sin. The landscape around us is still scattered with idols. How do we do it? And the answer is revival, the kind of revival that only God can bring. There's a lot of definitions you could have for revival. I like this one from another pastor. He says, true revival is God coming down among us, visiting us, dwelling among us in his glory, overflowing into our need. Revival is God with us overflowing into our need. That's similar to how Peter in Acts describes it as a time of refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord. You see, revival is not something that we schedule. It's not something created by our spiritual euphoria or stirred merely by sufficient excitements. Revival is like the wind. It blows when and where it wills. Revival is the Spirit drawing us close to God. Another teacher described it as God being overwhelmingly real to us. How real is God to you? In the servant, God promised to fix the world that we've broken. And our confident hope is that he will keep that promise. He will make all things new because he said he would. And as a part of fulfilling that promise, he will also make his people worthy 
of that kingdom. And he does that in two ways. Justification, he declares us worthy on account of Christ's righteousness. And also, glorification. The end of a sanctifying process where God makes us more and more like Christ every day until we are the reality of what's been declared about us. And so given that calling that God is sanctifying us toward glory and giving this world in which we live, revival is exactly what we need. Verse 1, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. Justice. Righteousness. In the next verse, hands that do no evil. I don't have to tell you that's not where we were before God saved us. What Isaiah describes here is where we are after God saves. He describes the result of walking in faith with him. What he describes are the results of revival. I heard the expression once that the future strengthens us to live well today. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. What God has done in the suffering and resurrected servant has eternal consequences. That's the future. But we don't have to wait for eternity to experience its effects. The presence of the Lord is with us now. We can be refreshed by him even today. Don't you need some refreshment? Isaiah started with the results of how we live with one another. Yes, the world is filled with God-haters and idolaters and those who just want to make life hard. Even so, what would life be like if all of our interactions with even just those who call themselves Christians were Christ-like? Wouldn't it make a pretty big difference if all of those interactions were just and righteous and hands that did no evil? Now, we still sin. We will need to give and receive forgiveness often. But I worry sometimes that in our rush to admit that we aren't perfect, we can sometimes use that imperfection as an excuse. Yes, in this life, we will not be perfect. It's true. But in every moment, we do have the capacity to walk with God in faith. And when we do, we can keep justice. We can do righteousness. We can refrain from doing evil. When God becomes real to us and we see just how he overflows our need, just for a moment, things can be in our day-to-day lives as they will be in eternity. That perfection of life with God can, can break in for just a moment. Isaiah gives us an example that will become a theme for him in these chapters, which is Sabbath keeping. 
It brings together several of the threads that he's pulling on with respect to revival. Because the Sabbath is a glimpse of the world to come breaking into our world today. I've heard it described as a weekly dress rehearsal for heaven. Israel on the Sabbath, and now we on the Lord's Day, can already experience what is otherwise not yet come. The Sabbath as an opportunity to taste that life may be different than the understanding some of us have about Sunday. One teacher explains it this way. He says, look closely. The Sabbath is not keeping our hands from doing any activity. The real Sabbath is keeping our hands from doing any evil. The real Sabbath and the real Sabbath rest is busy. It's busy with justice and righteousness. It's a paradox. Busy rest. Can that really work? Sure, because true justice and righteousness aren't driven and perfectionistic. They're received by grace. Christ himself is a living Sabbath for people who would be compulsively self-righteous without him. His justice and righteousness are our rest, not burdensome, but joyful relief. Isaiah also uses this example of Sabbath to make another point. Jesus would clarify this idea in greater detail in his ministry, but it wasn't new. Jesus was explaining how God had always worked. And there are lots of different terms you could use to describe it. Internal and external, sign and signified, or form and essence, but they all refer to the same idea. God's passion is for the principle, for the heart of the matter. He may institute different specific forms to teach us. And as humans, we will latch onto the forms. We'll make it about the form. But God's passion is for the principle. That's what the Pharisees got so wrong, what Jesus was constantly correcting them about. They're obsessed with the form at the expense of the principle. Israel was a form of God's people, but never in itself the essence The temple and the tabernacle were forms of God's dwelling place with man. But Jesus in the incarnation and the Holy Spirit indwelling all believers, that shows much more clearly the essence of the thing that God will be with his people. And Isaiah's example here is easy for us to pass over just because it's a weird section of text. But to his original audience, this would have been mind-blowing. Starting in verse 3, that God invites foreigners and eunuchs to join him in Sabbath rest. Foreigners are pagans, idolaters. They're not on the guest list for Sabbath rest. Eunuchs were prohibited by law from entering the temple. The brokenness of their bodies was a sign of the brokenness of the fall, and it would have marred Sabbath perfection. And so as a form, these groups were identified as being clearly separated from God. He used them to make an important point about holiness. 
But here, wrote another preacher, the prophet shows that the grace of God will be such that even people who were formerly estranged from him, against whom the door might have been said to be shut, may obtain a new condition or be perfectly restored. Maybe you know someone who feels this way now. Maybe sometimes you felt that way yourself. That the door to God's grace must be shut to you because of your sin, because of your unclean condition. And it's true that sin utterly separates us from God. And at times God has used forms like this to make that very point clear. But God doesn't just leave things there. That's not his last word on the matter. The essence will endure forever, but the forms will change. And in Christ, the doors to his grace are thrown wide open to all who will come. And here God shows Isaiah, gives him just a glimpse of what that will look like. Verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. These, these unclean, these Gentiles, these pagans, these foreigners, these broken and messy, these eunuchs, these I will bring to my holy mountain. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already Do you know what it is to feel as an outcast? And God says he will gather us to him. Now to remind us why we must come to him and why he must gather us, Isaiah next contrasts the justice and righteousness of our Sabbath dress rehearsal. He contrasts life with revival with life without it. What are lives like apart from God? It's only by faith, it's only by the work of his spirit and by revival that the blessings of heaven can break in on our reality. Without that, left to our own devices, life looks different. It looks like he describes in verse 9 and following. And he really just works his way down. He starts with leadership. What he observes begins with bad leadership. In our individualistic age, we tend to downplay the impact of leadership and think it doesn't matter very much. Isaiah knows that's not true. People go as they are led. That is true in our homes and in our churches and in the world at large. Verse 10, his watchmen are blind. They're all without knowledge. They're silent dogs. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have turned to their own way. You see, the men who are supposed to watch the flock, they're asleep. The shepherds who are supposed to lay down their lives for the sheep have turned to selfish gain. Israel's covenant unfaithfulness begins as a failure of leadership. There is a crisis in the American church today because there has been a crisis in the American pulpits for decades. People go as they are led. 
and blind watchmen and sleeping dogs are allowing the enemy to devour their people. And it's no surprise that as a result, the people aren't walking with God. The next chapter, you see that people have no regard for righteousness or for those who practice it. No one mourns the death of a righteous person. No one notices their absence among the people. They've been called up to glory, and the people are too blind and stupid to notice. It's not just a modern problem that it's the people who do the right thing that seem like the weird ones. Leaders like Hezekiah and Josiah had tried to bring the people back to God, but it didn't take long under godless leadership for the people to turn back and go their own way. These righteous kings, what what does the Bible tell us they did? They tore down the idols and the high places. They tried to rid the kingdom of their presence. But then godless leaders would let down their guard. They would invite them back in and the people would return to their idols. Verses 3 through 13 are an extended description of God's perspective on that idolatry. It's spiritual adultery. God's covenant with his people is like marriage. And his bride has become more devoted to idols than to him. When God stops being real in our hearts, we will turn to everything else for security and satisfaction. You know it and I know it. And when we do that and we get in that pattern of turning to not God's, the thought of turning to God for those things is either forgotten or downright laughable. And that's not how the marriage should work. Says one writer, treating God as if he's not enough to satisfy us is spiritual whoredom. That's why our role in the relationship is not control, but surrender. Oh, that we would surrender rather than try to control God. Then revival could come. That is not where we should be in this idolatry and spiritual adultery. And it is where we were. If God did not intervene, if he did not come to us, if he does not revive us, this is the way we will go. Sleeping and selfish shepherds, no regard for righteousness, a continual turning to not gods rather than God. Kids, I hope you know and I hope you've experienced that there are many blessings that come with growing up in the church. You look around this room and think about the number of people who know you and love you and pray for you. To learn how to worship, to be invited into that worship with us every week. These are blessings that come from growing up in the church. There's also a danger that comes from growing up in the church. It's the same danger that threatens all of us adults here too. For we could make the mistake of thinking that it's enough just to be in church. We could make the mistake of thinking that we no longer need revival in our hearts. 
When you hear Isaiah describe these selfish leaders and these people who criticize rather than respect the righteous, when, when you hear, kids, these people that Isaiah describes who turn away from God and go their own way, you might picture them as really monstrous people, really evil. But do you know what he's describing? He's describing people who are like us, who forget their need for revival. Verse 11, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? How many times this week did I say in my own heart, I've got this. Yet God is always offering to revive us. He's always offering us himself. Look at the end of verse 13. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. That is, one of my commentaries said, Old Testament code language to say that in the gospel, God is offering us everything. That's why right after that, in verse 15, you get exactly what you'd expect. If somebody tells you they're going to offer you everything, what do you want to come next? How do I find it? How do I I get it? That's exactly what happens in verse 15. We're not left guessing as to how to receive revival. For thus says the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of of the contrite. See, on his own, God is way up there. He's high and lifted up. His name is holy. And at first glance, it would seem that you can't get there from here. But look at what else he says. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. You don't have to climb up there. If you will humble yourself, he will come down to you. When our hearts are haughty, we don't need God. We're way too polished to say that. We've been in the church too long. Maybe we've gotten good at fooling ourselves, but we think we know we can take care of things on our own. We have a network. We have resources. We have street smarts. We will figure it out. Here's the danger. A heart that is reliant on those things has no room for God. It hasn't made space for him. Revival doesn't come because God doesn't dwell there. I read this week, I love this. God doesn't value upward mobility. He values downward mobility because down low is where he finds the people who are open to him. The Lord has brought you low. I pray that you would see that is what he is doing. He is clearing out all of the piled up clutter in your heart, all of the not gods, all of the selfish meism to make you humble so there is room for him. A heart that is humble has room for God. And then the experience of his presence is what revives us. And what Isaiah is saying to us this morning 
is that it can revive us daily if we will make room for him. It's not just a one and done. It's a daily overflowing of that presence into our need. And then we will walk in faith. We keep justice. We do righteousness. We practice active Sabbath rest. We live for him rather than ourselves. Do you need revival? The answer is yes. Do you know you need revival? Where are you? And and where should you be? Are are you too good for it? Are you too sophisticated? Do you have no need of it? After all, you've been a Christian for a long time. You've, You've grown up in the church. It's unnecessary. You can take care of it now by yourself. Oh, Christian. What a waste. What a shame. God is offering you his own presence daily. He's offering to revive you. He's offering that you could experience these little moments of eternity breaking in on the here and the now. He's offering you that revived by his presence, you can keep justice and do righteousness, we get to be more like Christ for and with one another. As much as you want that from others, that's how much they want that from you. God has made remarkable promises. He has accomplished those purposes for us in Christ, and he has secured our eternity with him. And yes, we're waiting. We're waiting for the fullness of it all. But brothers and sisters, he's not just left us waiting. He's drawing near to us even now to revive us daily until that day comes. And that's revival. Humble your hearts and make room for him. You can be daily changed.